open your Bibles to uh, the book of Jonah. We're continuing with the book of Jonah. We're going to be looking at the storm that God sent Jonah's way. And if you look through the book of Jonah, you will notice the word appointed appears over and over. And we'll read it even today, how God appointed a storm. And storms do come our way. They come in the life of the believer. They come in the life of, of a family, of a couple. And sometimes they come in the life of a church. And so we need to understand how God uses storms to shape us. And uh, they are appointed for the child of God. Nothing happens by chance when it comes to God's children. Nothing. All things are designed for God's children, for the sanctification, for the transformation, so that the child of God can be trained in righteousness. All things work for the good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. So, Jonah chapter 1. I hope you've been reading through the book and just getting the uh, gist of the story and also what God is teaching you personally in your life. Um, it's a, I, I've read through many times the book of Jonah, just over and over, and I've gleaned truths every single time because the book of God, which is the Word of God, is uh, inexhaustible, right? So let's read from verse 1 to verse 7. Uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, boarded it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. However, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And then the sailors came, became afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the stern of the ship, had lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let's cast lots so that we may find out on whose account this catastrophe has struck us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with grateful hearts. We thank you for your grace, your sustaining power throughout this week, for the way you helped us navigate difficult moments, for the way your word served as a compass, as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. How could we ever, oh Lord, thank you enough? You've done so many things. And once again, we are gathered around your word, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be challenged, corrected. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would have attentive ears and that we would surrender our will to yours to do your bidding. 
And this we pray in the wonderful and glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. So last week we saw how this premier prophet, this man of God, went AWOL, just uh, did his own thing. Jonah was uh, commanded to go to Nineveh, but he packed his bags and went the opposite way. He went to Joppa and there bought a ticket, as we read, to Tarshish. Now Jonah had been a very faithful servant up to this time, obedient and, uh, and successful in his ministry. Now he's asked to go to the wicked people of Nineveh. The kingdom of the Assyrians was to the north of Israel, and Nineveh was its capital. Why did Jonah refuse to go? Well, because Jonah's understanding was that God had a covenant with Israel, but not with anyone else. Why bother with the Ninevites, the Egyptians, the Babylonians? God had no covenant with them, only with Israel. Now, some asked, what is a covenant? And we know um, some of us have an idea what that is. I'm just going to give a little more information. A covenant is an agreement, of course, between two parties. In Scripture, there are several covenants. You have the covenant between God and Adam. And you'll remember that covenant. Uh, God says to multiply, fill the earth. And also, he gave him instructions with regards to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then we have the covenant between uh, God and Noah later on after the flood. We have the covenant between God and Abraham and God and Israel. That's a more elaborate covenant. In fact, much more elaborate than any other covenant, if you would. And then, of course, we have the covenant between uh, Christ and the Father and the Spirit that blesses us. And we are the recipients of that covenant. That's called the covenant of redemption. And it was planned way before the creation of the world and actually put into effect with his coming and his death on the cross. Now, the covenant that precedes the covenant of grace is the covenant of the law, the covenant between God and Israel. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 7, uh, to 10 rather, we have an idea how this covenant is framed, okay? It doesn't, this is not all of the wording of the covenant. In fact, the wording of the covenant is found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's found in those three, bo- four books, rather. And it also includes that which God made with Abraham. But here we have a good idea of the covenant between God and Israel. So listen to the words. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you in Israel to be a people for his personal possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So they realize that. God chose us. The Lord did not make you his beloved, nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples, since you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, and the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love him 
and keep his commandments. But he repays those who hate him to their faces to eliminate them. He will not hesitate toward him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Now, you have there the gist of the covenant that God made with this people called Israel. And elsewhere you read other provisions and blessings and protections and also curses that were included in the covenant. So if they followed God and they obeyed God, the covenant provided blessings and protection. If they broke the covenant by breaking the law, by worshiping other idols and by being wicked, God would bring in curses so that they would be punished for their sins. The covenant with the church is different. However, there's aspects of this covenant that teach us how God works, his faithfulness, his holiness, his, uh, the fact that he is unchanging in his word. So Jonah knew that there was a covenant between God and Israel, but there was no such covenant with the Assyrians, with Nineveh. So why bother? They're wicked. Just wipe them off the face of the earth. Why should I go? Why should I tell them that they're going to be destroyed? Get rid of them. They don't deserve to live. And that's where we left off last week. What Jonah failed to realize is God's loving kindness was not limited to Israel. It wasn't that day. It was. But it wasn't limited to Israel. God's loving kindness is far greater in scope than just the people of Israel. It includes the elect from every nation, every tribe, every people on the face of this earth. Jonah didn't understand that, and much less did the people of Israel understand that. So from the verses we just finished reading, we're going to consider the storm, the sailor's expertise, the sailor's supplication, the skipper's rebuke, and finally, the servant's confession. First, a storm like no other. However, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Um, I've never been in such a storm. I've been in storms, but not this kind of storm. And the storms that I've been in were frightening. So I can imagine how frightening this must have been. Here we see a violent storm mercilessly beating this ship because of one man's disobedience. All the sailors were impacted, all of them, with Jonah. And often in scriptures we see how God's judgment impacts not only the individual who sins, but those around him those closest to him. For example, when Achan of Judah, during the days of Joshua, sinned by taking that which was devoted, right, in the conquest of Jericho, under the leadership of Joshua. What does God do? All of Israel is punished when they go to the next village, or next town called Ai, and they were defeated. A humiliating defeat. All of them paid the price. Or when David sinned by taking an unlawful census of the kingdom. He wanted to know how many 
men, his military might, and that was an unlawful thing to do, what does God do? The angel of death goes through Israel and kills thousands of the stoutest men. And David weeps for his mistake. And in the passage we just read, we see that all the sailors are impacted by the storm. They didn't do the wrong. Jonah did. Now, Jonah could have been punished before, but God strikes when he's with the others. God could have singled Jonah, but they all paid. A father who sins does not sin in secret. His family pays the price for his folly. A pastor or an elder who sins does not sin in secret. The members pay the price for his indiscretion. A leader of a country or a corporation who sins does not sin privately. The people under his leadership will suffer the consequences of his action. For this reason, we see God sending a storm that directly impacts all the sailors on that ship. Not all storms are sent by God as a punishment for disobedience. Some are sent as a test. For example, we read that after Jesus performed the miracle of the multiplication of the bread and the fish, he commanded his disciples to get into the boat. In Matthew 14, we read, verse 22, immediately afterward, he compelled them. It was, get into the boat. That's what it means. He actually compelled. And they must have said, look, you know, it, it doesn't look right. Maybe we should stay. No, get into the boat. He compelled them. You never see Jesus actually compelling anyone. This is the only time the word is used in this fashion. And he compelled the disciples to get into the boat and to go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. That was a storm sent by God for the disciples. The storm did not arise because of disobedience. It arose because of their obedience. It was Jesus that compelled his disciples to get into the boat, and it was Jesus that sent them into the storm while he prayed for them. So while we're going through a storm, remember that, Jesus prays for us. How wonderful. However, in both cases, the storm originates with God. When there's disobedience, the storm is sent to bring out repentance, to bring people to confess. When there is obedience, the storm is meant to test us and to bring to the surface what is inside of us. Storms are humbling. They... Um, bring us down to our knees. Whether they arise because of our disobedience or because of our obedience, they are humbling and we never know how long they last. We have no say in a storm. God is the one that determines the size, the duration, the impact, and the scope of a storm. Whenever I've been hit by a spiritual storm, I have learned to humble myself under the mighty hand of God.
That's the best thing to do. And he does with me what he wills. For I know he seeks to remove the dross that is in my life. What dross? We all have dross. We're not pure gold. Our faith is not pure. And so he brings the dross out. It could be fear, self-reliance, pride, the need to control, self-righteousness, an unruly tongue, manipulation, lack of trust, our need to look good, self-preservation, deception, dross is often in our lives and it needs to be brought out. And storms do this. When God in his mercy reveals these ungodly traits in us during a storm, we should say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And we should praise him because we are not being dealt with according to our sins. How wonderful is God. Never waste a storm, beloved, never. Always come out of a storm with spoils. There are some Christians that go through a storm and they've learned nothing. All they do is they complain. And when they come out, they say, thank God it's over. What did you learn in the storm? What are the spoils that you come out of it? What are the spoils that you come through that storm with? So here we learn the futility of running away from God. Secondly, we look at the sailors' expertise. It says in verse 5, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. The sailors in the story were pagans. They had no knowledge of the living God. They had no understanding of the covenant with God. They knew nothing of his greatness, of his majesty, of his holiness. Nothing. They saw things with a natural eye. And so they begin to work using their expertise to manage and navigate through those waters. The church is positioned within a culture that is comprised of people who have a world view that differs greatly from that of the church. We can safely say that the sailors represent the culture. When our culture addresses an ongoing war, for example, the war that is going on with Ukraine, and between Ukraine and Russia, or the climate emergency, as others call it, or COVID-19, or poverty. They use all their resources and energy to remedy these problems. They do not turn to God. They'll turn to scientists, they'll turn to the experts, they'll turn to technology, whatever. And like the sailors, the more they try, the bigger the problem gets. We cannot blame the sailors for trying and for throwing their cargo overboard and frantically looking for ways to save their ship. We can't blame them. All their expertise goes into play. Likewise, we sympathize with the environmentalists, with the activists, with the scientists, with the experts who are trying to save the earth, trying to stop the war, trying to bring an end to COVID-19. We don't criticize them. We sympathize with them. Just like Jonah in our story, the church is often viewed as being asleep while these issues rage in our world. The issues that plague our world go from bad to worse, and often the church is seen as doing nothing about it. I've been uh, challenged many times by individuals who said, look, what are Christians doing about the environment? Are you tackling fossil fuel? The world is burning, they say. 
There are churches that have joined environmentalists and activists because they feel that Christians need to do something to address these hard issues of our day. Now imagine if Jonah would have gotten up, looked at the sailors, he knew very well why the storm was there, and he would start throwing cargo overboard. And he would start manipulating the, the sails, and, and then he would start helping the uh, men by uh, jugging off and jettisoning the water from their boat, or their ship rather. That would have made no sense. True Christians are fighting, but we fight on a different plane. We fight with the weapons of the Spirit. The weapons used by the, our culture are not our weapons. They differ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, though we are in this body, we live in this world, surrounded by the problems that are in this world, and we groan with those who are in this world, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not, they're not of the flesh. Believers who choose to use the weapons of this world or of this culture have forfeited the true weapons that they've been given by God. Or they've never known the Lord, calling themselves Christians and fighting by joining the social war, uh, social justice warriors. The answer is not finding found in joining the culture and fighting with fleshly weapons, but to understand the power of our God-given weapons and fighting the good fight. So the power of the gospel, that's our weapon. The power of prayer, that's another weapon. The power of a holy life, that's another weapon. The power in loving each other fervently, that's another weapon. The power of hating sin, these are the weapons we have. With these weapons, we fight. Now, today the buzzwords are equity, diversity, inclusivity, and fighting against racism. And by doing this, many churches have capitulated to the message of our culture. And they start fighting with, on this front with the weapons of the culture. But it's just futile. The, the, the seamen were fighting this storm with their own strength, but nothing could have helped them. All their expertise was futile. So while we do not mock those who fight, we dare not join them. We fight rather the good fight with the weapons that God has given us. Thirdly, we see the sailors' supplication. It says in verse 5, then the sailors became afraid. Once they realized that their expertise wasn't helping, they became afraid and every man cried out to his God. Well, someone aptly said, fear makes even atheists pray from time to time. These men did not know God, the God of heaven, the God of Israel, and in their moment of despair, they turned to their God, their false God. And typically when pagans prayed, they promised their God something, made a vow, so that in return they would get something from God, their God. It was a transactional prayer. The reasoning behind such prayers is this, is I'll give you my cow, I'll sacrifice my favorite cow, or my daughter that is to be born, I'll offer her as a priestess to serve in the temple, I'll give this sum of money, whatever it was, so that I can get a favor in return. It's a negotiation. I will give you this 
and you will give me this in return. And many Christians pray that way. And that is the wrong way to pray. We don't, we don't pray transactionally with the God of heaven. That's how pagans prayed. We pray out of a sense of gratitude. We worship first. You are the great God who saved us from the wrath to come, from judgment. I am yours. I don't deserve it. Starts there. What can we give God that he doesn't already possess? Really? We can give something to God so that he can give something in return? In Psalm 50, we see God reminding his people of this very truth because they had lowered themselves to a transaction relationship with God of heaven. They were praying transactionally. They were negotiating with God. And God, through his servant, says, Hear, my people, and I will speak. Israel, I will testify against you. So notice Israel, the God of Israel, with whom there was a covenant. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices. And so Israel was faithful in bringing the sacrifices to the temple. And your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor male goats from your folds, for every animal of the forest is mine. Because what are you giving me? You think I need your goats and your bulls? Think I'm up here waiting for your next bull to come in? The cattle on a thousand hills, mine. I know every bird of the mountains. Everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I will not tell you, for the world is mine and everything it contains. What are we going to give God? So when a redeemed child of God prays or serves or gives, he does so with the awareness that God is worthy. God is worthy. And therefore we give and serve and pray and honor our God and express our gratitude for all that he's done for sending his son to die and becoming sin so that we could become the righteousness of God and Christ. It is out of gratitude. We pray for sheer communion. If God were to stop giving our very breath and the very molecules in our body would stop acting as they should, if God were to take away everything we have, we still owe him. We are in debt towards God. And therefore, we are to praise him and thank him. The sailor's supplication, though offered in sincerity, was still wrong. God seeks those who pray in spirit and in truth. Sincerity is often overrated. As long as you're sincere, they say. They were sincere, they were very sincere. But sincerity is not enough. Worship must be based on truth and it must be in the spirit, which means that it's not located to one special local or locale. All other worship is false. So here we see the futility of transactional prayers. Four, we see the skipper's rebuke. Look at verses five and six. But Jonah had gone below into the stern of the ship, had lain down, fallen sound asleep, And so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. They had run out of 
resources and said, just pray, maybe your God is going to listen. And while everyone on that ship was desperately trying to save themselves from certain death, here's Jonah sleeping. How in the world could he have slept? It's just impossible to think. But he was so self-centered. He, so, he felt so justified. I am not going to go to the Ninevites. I am not going to preach that message. I am going to go away. He thought he was doing the right thing. And that's what happens when we, do a, when we make a decision that is contrary to God's will. We are deceived into thinking that we are right. The deception is reinforced by drowsiness. Drowsiness. We fall asleep. We are in a state of drowsiness. What is fascinating is to see how Jonah is even able to sleep through all of this. I don't know how many of you have ever traveled on rough waters. I remember when I left, uh, in 1981, I left Ostia, it's close to Rome, and I was to cross the Tyrrhenian Sea and go to Sardinia, and I was scheduled to preach. It was an overnight trip, and the waters were rough. It wasn't a violent storm. And that thing was going up and down. I couldn't sleep. I, I just was unable to sleep. And I, when I finally arrived, I was like a rag. <laughs> and I had to preach, and I didn't know how I did it. I don't even know what I preached. You know? And that was just rough waters. Jonah was asleep in the midst of a violent storm. That's why the skipper is stunned. He goes, what are you doing sleeping? How can you sleep? Disobedience makes us self-centered and careless. It makes us preoccupied with ourselves and unconcerned with those around us. That's what happens when we are sinning. And that is why he gets a rebuke that must have stung. How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. A pagan awakens the conscience of God's servant. How interesting. A pagan. I remember a time when I was wallowing in self-pity. I can't remember the reason why, but I remember what I did. I didn't want to stay in the town where I was pastoring, so this was in Sicily, so because Sicily, you meet people everywhere, um, and, and they, uh, they're talking to you at all times. So I just took my little Fiat 500, and I just drove to the nearest town, about 40 kilometers away, and it was about 11 o'clock, and 11, I waited for 11.30, walked into a pizzeria, and I said, no one knows me here, I'll just be on my own, I'll just, and I, was just, I wasn't happy, I wasn't, I wasn't in the wrong state of mind. And I ordered my pizza, and as I'm eating my pizza, I hear, uh, Pastor, <laughs> I said, I thought that was you. How are you? And I said, oh, Lord, what the, why, why am I here? Why is this happening? And this person just, you know, there, they don't ask. They just pull the chair. How are you? And they just sit, and they just occupy you for the next two hours, you know. And uh, talk and talk and talk. And, and I was just inside, I said, Lord, please, I want to leave. And then, but, but by the time he finished... <laughs> I was rebuked, and uh, the Lord used him to, he didn't know. <laughs> he didn't know. He just uh, he was used by the Lord to rebuke me. And that has happened many times in my life. Many of us need to hear the words that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, in Ephesians, uh, the Ephesian church, rather, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, awake sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Some of us are in a state of drowsiness. We are unconcerned with the situation in our home, the church, or the lost, the people that we work with. We're just not concerned about their souls. We're, we're just concerned about ourselves, concerned about making 
more money or having a bigger house or a better car, whatever it is, and not concerned about what God has set us here for. We need to repent of that. And sometimes God uses people to rebuke us, even pagans, heathens, those like in the case of Jonah. Thank God for the rebuke. And then we see the servant is exposed. Uh, Verse uh, 7, And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may find out on whose account this catastrophe has struck us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So after exhausting every possible resource, after praying to every possible God, after crying out to every deity available to them, they finally said, look, it's your fault, it's your fault. And they start pointing the finger to each other because it has to be someone here on board has done something really, really awful. But who could it be? And so they decide to cast lots. Now, casting lots was a common practice uh, used at the time to determine who to choose for a task or to determine who was responsible for a negative outcome. You'll read about casting lots throughout the Old Testament and only at the beginning of the book of Acts in the New. And uh, it was not only practiced by the Jews, in fact, even in the temple, those who served as priests did so by rotation and they did it through lots. And um, it was not only practiced by the Jews, it was practiced by everyone at that time, even today. The lottery is like that, casting lots. The Jews would typically pray before casting lots. These were not Jews here on the ship. They were uh, heathens, men who did not know God. But God was in the process. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, the cast the cast lot puts an end to quarrels. So what happened here, they were quarreling. They are trying to determine, why is this happening? This is such a strange storm. This should not be here. It puts a, an end to quarrels and decides between the mighty ones. I was in a church once where um, there was a radio station uh, that was uh, uh, used by this group of churches and they didn't come to an understanding as to what should be done with the radio station and so I was there present and one brother said listen let's just cast lots and let's determine by the casting of lots how to, what to do with this radio station and I found it strange I said this is the first time <laughs> I was there this was in Sicily I said I'm learning a lot in this country I really am and so I'm waiting there and sure enough they cast lots they put one straw that was short and a whole bunch of other straws were longer. And, and so what, they pull out the straw. And the guy who had the shortest straw says, okay, so what's your idea? What should we do here? And they followed his suggestion. And that's how they did it. They, they said, period. It just, <laughs> the argument ended. The whole meeting ended. I said, wow, why didn't they do this from the beginning? <laughs> they casted lots. So the sailors were trying to, everything to determine how to end this storm. And so they decided to cast lots. And of course, God was involved. And God made sure that his servant would be uncovered. He was exposed and embarrassed before heathens who were more conscientious than the servant of the Lord. It's an awful thing when Christians are exposed. Um, you, you read about churches where 
pastors have been exposed with um, uh, doing illegitimate things, sinful things, uh, either with money or with women and, and or just abuse of power, uh, whether they covered up certain things that happened in the history of the church with regards to abuse. And you read about all this and you say, either if they're God's people, then they will repent if they're truly God's servants. In most instances, I don't see repentance. It's because most of these churches, I don't even know if there's any fear of the Lord in them, which is a sad thing. But this servant feared God. And we're going to see, not next week, because next week is uh, Easter, but the following week, what, how he responds. And it's a remarkable response. As he's exposed, he doesn't justify himself. He ex- confesses his sins. So here's what we learn. Because God is glorified through all this, nonetheless, even through the disobedience of his servant. The futility of running away from God. Because God knows how to send a storm. The futility of trying to resolve the world's problems or our problems with our own strength and our own ingenuity. We have a Christian worldview. And the Christian worldview reminds us that we surrender to God, we submit to God, we seek his will and his face. The futility of depending on other gods, the gods of science, the gods of technology, the gods of entertainment, the gods of medicine, the gods that are prevalent today. We look to them for an answer to our problems. That's the world, that's the culture in which we live in. We look to the God of heaven and earth, our Savior. And even... Lesson number four, even when the church is shamed for her disobedience, God is still in the picture. Those who fear him will humble themselves. That's how you know if once the person is shamed and once he's embarrassed, once he's exposed, if he truly is a child of God, he will humble himself. She will humble herself and not resist and not justify and not put forth arguments and not try to wiggle himself out of that situation. He will, like David, I have sinned, and he humbles himself before God. But when they justify, when they try to excuse and try to manipulate, there you can see it's, it's a man. And there's no fear of God. And we'll see next, uh, next time how Jonah humbled himself before these men and before Almighty God. He did not continue in his stubborn pride. We're going to be celebrating Easter this uh, coming weekend, and, and when you think of how the Lord humbled himself and how he took on the greatest possible uh, load, our sins, our disobedience, our evil, and he made himself sin, made himself a curse, why should we not humble ourselves before God? It is foolish to think that we could justify ourselves when we sin, when we do wrong, very, very wrong. So if there's someone, for example, that has done wrong to, here to someone else, best thing to do is just to humble yourself. Ask the Lord for grace, and then just humble yourself before him and before those who've hurt you, and acknowledge your wrong, and the Lord will work in your life. It will be humbling, it will hurt, 
but it will have such benefits and uh, the Lord ultimately will be glorified. So let us pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we come before you with grateful hearts and we thank you because you're the one You're the one who called us to yourself. You foreknew us and you predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son. Why would you have done that? Why did you love us so much? Why did you choose sinners to become saints? Why did you choose corrupt individuals to become children of the Most High God? Why did you choose individuals who deserved to be punished, to be seated at your table with you. Why did he leave heaven so that we could have a way made for us to get into heaven? We can't understand fully this plan. We are taken aback with your wisdom, with your love. But we are also aware, Lord, that while we are waiting to be translated into the new world, into your presence, we struggle with the law of sin, the law of sin that is in our body. And I pray, Lord, that if any of us are like Jonah in any which way, that we'd be quick to repent, quick to confess, that we would not need to be brought into a point where a storm would hit our lives, hit our homes, hit our church. Lord, deliver us from a storm that comes out of disobedience. And if there's a storm that is hitting us because we have been faithful and obedient then, Lord, help us to humble ourselves and to not fight, not to argue one with another, not to point a finger, but to simply trust in you that you will bring us through this storm and you will cause your name to be glorified nonetheless. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truths that we can glean from your word. Thank you for how you speak to us, for how you are the one who is more and attentive to what is going on in our lives. You are intimately involved, providentially. You are always involved in the details of our lives. We bless you for that, and we thank you for those who still do not know you. We pray that you would draw them to yourself so they would come out of darkness and into the glorious light of your beloved Son and become children of God, born again, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Let this be, Lord, for your name's sake, we ask. And if there are those of us who are unconcerned with the fate of others and preoccupied with our own situation, forgive us, Lord. Open our eyes to the plight of those we work with, to the plight of those we meet. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to share the gospel and not to... Uh, be ashamed of the gospel, but to be boldly proclaim who Christ is so that your name is glorified because we are the fragrance of Christ. To those who believe, a fragrance of life. To those who don't, the fragrance of death. May we continue to be that fragrance, Lord, for your name's sake. And this we pray in the precious and glorious name of our Lord. Amen. Amen.